Just give a hand to those families. Just thank God for them. All right. Well, hey, today we are going to go on a journey. We are going to go on a journey through the scriptures. We're going to go all the way from Exodus to Jesus. I promise we won't, like, go all the way till this evening, though, okay? So, but we are. We're going on a journey, and I think it's going to be good. It's a wild journey. There's a lot going on in this story. There's deceit. There's, you know, lawbreakers. There's war. There's fighting. There's all sorts of crazy stuff happening. And we are going to look into this story as we see uh, this, this next part that we have in the Chronicles of the Kings. So I encourage you to do two things right now. One, Pull out the notes from the little bulletin program thing that you got when you came in. And also grab your Bibles. Grab a Bible from the back of the seat in front of you. Grab your phone, your tablet, whatever you got. And let's get into it. Okay? So we are going to start all the way back to the time of the Exodus. You don't need to look this part up, but just kind of stick with me. We're going all the way back to the Exodus. And when we go back to the Exodus, we're starting there, and that is when the people of Israel, God's chosen people, right? They are in slavery to the Egyptians. And God delivers them. All these amazing miracles happen. God delivers his people through Moses as their leader, right? And he takes them out, and they now go out into the desert. They're out wandering in the desert, and they happen upon on this place called Mount Sinai. And at this place, when they go up, uh, Moses goes up onto this mountain and God appears to him. It's incredible. And God gives him his law, his words, his ways that he would live his life, right? That, that the people of Israel should live their lives in a way that is after God, a way that God would want them to. And so they're up, Moses is up there in this mountain, but he's kind of taken a little bit too long. And so then the people of Israel, they decide with uh, Aaron, who's like the priest, they decide, you know what, let's, let's make our own God. And so they get all their gold and they melt it down and they make a golden baby cow, okay? A golden calf. And he says, Aaron's like, hey, hero Israel, behold your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And they begin to worship this gold baby cow. Which I just think for some reason when you say baby cow, it sounds weirder than calf. You know, and it just kind of gets it in your head. But it's like this, this moment where they just decide, okay, we're going to follow this. And Moses comes down and he's, he's angry and God's angry. And God almost wipes them all out, but he doesn't, just some of them. And then the story goes on where you've got these people of Israel then, okay, we are going to try and follow God in this way. And so we see here that God has an order for everything is what we start to see when God gives them the law. He gives them uh, the commandments, the ways that they would live. You know, we know about the Ten Commandments. We think about that. But God establishes what he does. I'll, I'll read that verse in a moment. But God establishes guidelines in this moment, okay? He gives them guidelines and ways that they are supposed to worship and to sacrifice. And so I want to show you some of these. So grab your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 12. Genesis, this is the, these are the first five books of the Bibles, the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So we got the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy 12. And we start to see here how God is saying to them, look, there are some specific times, places, 
ways that you should worship, you know, like who should uh, like be in charge of administering the worship and the sacrifices, all of that. God has an order for everything, these ways that he wants his people to worship and sacrifice and do all of this. So Deuteronomy 12, so check this out. Uh, starts with verse 1, says, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. Okay? All right. Here's what we're supposed to do. Number 2, verse 2. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their Asherim with fire. There's these poles to worship this god Asherah. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. All right, so the first thing we got here is they're supposed to get rid of all these places where other countries would worship their gods, right? These, what we call these false gods, these idols. So he's like, okay, first thing you got to do is get rid of that. Now, you're going to see that issue come up throughout this whole series. And it's important that you know that that's a straight-up command of God to get rid of those. Because a lot of these kings get in trouble for not doing that very thing. But it continues. Verse 5. We're just going to read a couple more verses. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, and it goes on. All right, and it keeps going through verse 12 to, or 13, even saying more about that. Don't do it in other places. Do it here. And now where that place is, that place is when they go in. It says when you go into the land and possess it. And that is when they go into the promised land, the area that we call Israel today. And specifically, it is Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so the temple that Solomon builds, that is the place where the very presence of God dwells. And that is the place where they're supposed to do all this stuff, these sacrifices and all that. God has outlined it very specifically. And even if you look back a little bit to Leviticus 23, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... Numbers, Deuteronomy, so a couple books back. Leviticus 23, and even just even like looking at the pages, you can see, okay, God also appointed some specific times and things they were supposed to do. Feasts they would do, like Passover and others. And even more, I think, importantly, is one we call Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. This is the time where they are supposed to come and make a sacrifice that would atone for their sin. It would forgive their sin. It would be what would cover their sin for that year. And then they'd have to go back and do it again, have another sacrifice that would atone for their sin for that next year. And they had to do all of that at the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, it's important to recognize that. So we know there's times, places, who does it, all this stuff. God has an order for all of this. So here we are. We're Exodus. They come out. It's like 1440 BC, something like that. They come out of uh, captivity. They are now wandering. They get the law. They receive the law. They get into the promised land. So now they're in the promised land. They, they go in there, and now it's this period of time called the Judges. We even did a series in the book of Judges. And so the people, God is their king, right? God is their king, but they're governed or ruled by these judges. And now when we get into this time of these judges we start to see some glimpses of how compromise 
comes into the people of Israel. Compromise that divides hearts, kings, and kingdoms is what we're going to see as we keep going through this. But specifically here, in this time of the Judges, you go through all of it, you get past the part with Samson, and I want to tell one little story that happens in Judges 17 and 18, because it's kind of interesting of how it relates to the story that we're going to eventually get to about the king we're talking about today in this Chronicle of the Kings. All right? So I think this all stuff's like a, like a fascinating kind of like soap opera crazy story. And I want you to kind of go along with me as we're, as we're getting into the story. So you've got this group of people called the Danites. They were given this area, and it's an area kind of southwest of Jerusalem. It's kind of like near where the stories of Samson took place. And you've got them in this area, but they want to move. They want to bail, and they want to head up north where it's a little more lush and just a place that they would like more. Now, before all of that, though, there's this guy named Micah. Now, this guy named Micah, uh, he's, he's not actually not a really great guy. So he decides, <laughs> different, different Micah. There's a couple of Micahs in the Bible. We did have a kid named Micah dedicated today. It's not because it's not of this Micah, okay? <laughs> it's another Micah. <laughs> but uh, this Micah, he, he gets a bunch of silver, and he decides to melt it down and make some little statues to be his gods, Okay? These little statues of silver are now going to be, these are idols that he worships. And he even makes an ephod out of some of this silver, which is a thing that like the priests would wear when they would uh, lead in the sacrifices and all that. So you've got this guy, Micah, makes these, and then he sees this guy. Uh, this guy comes along in, in uh, Judges 17.7. There is this guy who was a Levite, comes out of Bethlehem, and happens along where Micah lives. So this guy... Uh, is a Levite, and he says, hey, you should, Levites are the ones that are supposed to be priests, right? He says, hey, you should be my priest. Instead of doing all, like, being priest for God, you know, over there, you should be my priest. So he does. So he comes in, and he wears the ephod, and he it leads worship of his little silver idols. Now, meanwhile, the, these Danites, the people of the tribe of Dan, uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, they're cruising up, and they, and I'm massively summarizing here, okay? So they are cruising up north, and along the way, they come upon this guy, this priest that's got the little silver statues and his little silver idols, and they say, hey, give us those. And they want it, they, and, then, and they say, hey, why don't you come with us? In fact, come with us no matter what. And so they take this priest and the little statue idols, and they say, come with us and be our priest, and we'll worship your little idols. And so he does, and he comes along with them, and then Micah comes out, and Micah and some of his people come out, and they're like, what are you doing? What are you taking our guy and our idols? And they say, you shut your mouth or we'll kill you. Go away, we're taking him. And so that's what happens, and they do. And they go up north, and if you look on the back of, I'm going to show these maps on the screen in a little bit, but if you look on the back of your uh, outline, you can see a map. And they head all the way up, and eventually there's a city that was called Laish, and now this city is called Dan. And it's like up on the very, this north end of this map. Uh, and you've got this city called Dan. And so up there now, that area is called Dan. We're going to come back to that in our story. That's where the people of Dan live, and they've begun, obviously, to compromise and to live their lives not in the way that God would want them to. So now we go through this period of time 
of the judges. And we get through it, and we get to a time where Israel wants a king. We've talked about that the last couple weeks. You got Saul as the king, then you got David as a king, then Solomon as a king. And that's all through this period of time that we would call the United Kingdom, or the United Monarchy. And here's where we got the map up on the screen, okay? This is the kingdom all together. This is what you would think of as Israel, right? This is the United Kingdom of Israel. It's kind of what we most normally, commonly think about it, the whole thing. All 12 tribes all together who are ruled by Saul. Saul ruled all of that. David ruled all of that. Solomon ruled all of that, right? He's the king of this one big Israel. Then what happens is, is there is a story that takes place of why this kingdom no longer is united, and it becomes a divided kingdom. And I want you to hear a bit of that story now. First of all, the king's name is, the king that follows Solomon is named Rehoboam, okay? Rehoboam is the king of Israel after Solomon, or yeah, the united kingdom after Solomon, all right? Now, what happened is, like a little bit just before in 1 Kings 11, you've got this prophecy that God gives uh, to another dude named Jeroboam, okay? Now, they're not even related, so it's weird, right? Why you got this guy named Rehoboam and Jeroboam? I don't know if it was God just thinking about Sunday school classes and messing with us or whatever, and, but it's like, okay, it gets really confusing. So you've got this guy, Rehoboam, who's the king. You've got this other guy named Jeroboam who God says, you're actually going to be king of ten of the tribes. And this is how that happens. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. This is the heart of our story. And we, again, we were seeing compromise entering into the lives of these people. And what happens is, I'm going to tell this story of 1 Kings like 12, 1 to 24, okay? And then we'll get into it even a little more detailed. But you've got Rehoboam. Rehoboam's the king, and the people go to Rehoboam with Jeroboam as, as their kind of representative, and they say, will you please go easier on us than your father Solomon did? It was really hard work under your father Solomon. We would like, we just ask if you could make that a little bit easier for us, and we will serve you forever. Okay? That's their request. They come to him with that. And so he says, all right, let me think about it. Give me a few days. And he goes and he consults these elders. Okay? He consults elders. And in verse 6, it says that he does that. He goes to them and he asks, you know, for advice. And the advice that they give him is, yes, this is a good idea. You should go easier on them. They'll serve you. They'll love you. Like, that is a good idea. But then it says that, that uh, Rehoboam, in verse 8, he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. Okay? So he doesn't want to hear the advice of the elders. He goes to his buddies and says, what do you guys think I should do? And they say, oh, no way. Don't go easier. Make it worse. Your father disciplined with whips. You should discipline with scorpions. That's what it says. It's like, okay, it's a little harsh, but Rehoboam likes it. So he goes with it, and he goes to the people and to Jeroboam and says, forget it. 
I will not go easy. I will be harder. I will discipline you with scorpions. And so what then happens is the people say, well, then no thanks. And they bail. And they make Jeroboam their king. And now we enter a time that we would call the divided kingdom. This kingdom divided, a divided monarchy, where you now have, and you can see it up here, but you can also see it right here in your little outline if you want to look up close. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north, and then you have the kingdom of Judah in the south. A little Benjamin mixed in there with Judah, okay? So you've got ten tribes in the north forming Israel, and now you've got the kingdom of Judah in the south. So, this is why this stuff gets like weird because you're used to just saying Israel, right? You're just kind of used to saying like, oh yeah, it was Israel. But Israel was really this northern kingdom for a long period of time. Israel is this northern kingdom ruled by first here Jeroboam. Now you've got then in the south is the kingdom of Judah ruled by Rehoboam. And it's like it's already hard enough and then the names sound so the same, right? And so it's all a little bit confusing, but we want to make this clear to you today. And that's why then you can see this timeline that comes along that you have also in your bulletin of now this is why this timeline splits like this and goes into two lines. So you've got Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south, and then that's where the string of kings goes along uh, as, as like history continues in this divided kingdom. Okay? So as we keep going through it, that's where we're, we're going to be talking about different kings that are now part of this divided kingdom. And you can even see here, just again, Jeroboam becomes king of Israel in the north, Rehoboam king of Judah in the south. So here's the question. What becomes or what is really important to the people of the northern kingdom or all the people of Israel but it's not in the north, it's in the south. What's this really, really, really important thing? Jerusalem, the temple. Yeah, exactly, okay? So you've got the temple in Jerusalem. Now look on your little maps. Where's Jerusalem? It's in the south, okay? It's in Judah. So this is the place that you have to go. It's a place that you have to go to like make sacrifices and worship and do all of this stuff. But the catch is it's not just the place to worship. It's the place that you go to, like, to get forgiveness of sins, to have your sins atoned for. you got to go to this place. So here's what I want you to imagine. I'm going to go back here, and this is going to be kind of the border, right? <laughs> this sideways aisle right here, okay, this is the border. And all of you in the back, okay, all you back rowers, right, you are all part of Israel. You're part of the northern kingdom, okay, part of the ten tribes in the north. Jeroboam is your king, okay? You've got yourself <laughs> with that. No, no, you don't get to be in the south, so you can't argue with it. Uh, <laughs> now, all of you people up here in the front, you are part of Judah. You are part of that southern kingdom. Now, let's just say that right up here on the stage... This is the temple, okay? This is where you would need to go. And if we want to modernize it, let's just, if we modernize it to now, I mean, it's almost like if I were to preach to you today about the love and grace of Jesus Christ, that you can receive the free gift of salvation, you know, eternal life with God. But you got to come right here to get it, okay? Old-fashioned, old-timey altar call. you got to come right up to the front and get down on your knees up here if you want to receive that free gift of salvation, and you're in the back, and there's, you know, there's a border all of a sudden, and you've got a king now 
that says, uh-uh, you're not going down there. That's what starts to happen, okay? So imagine, like, you want to just receive atonement, forgiveness, but now location is affecting that. So we got to deal with that. And so what happens is Jeroboam is not wanting the people to go down there, and that gets us into the next part of our story. Okay, here we go. Now, what we got to see here is in 1 Kings 12, 25, 26. We'll start around there. Is this initial compromise has led to even greater sin and brokenness because you have now the king of the north, Jeroboam, king of Israel, is stopping people from going down to to receive atonement. Verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices— and I'll even stop there. Why it says go up to offer sacrifices. I think sometimes our brains think like up is north on a map. But, re- but really Jerusalem was up in the hill country. So you had to go up the hill no matter where you were in the other parts. Okay, so go up. So now he says if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's concerned with power, control, right? His, his rule, his reign. He's concerned with that more than he is about them being able to go follow the order for everything that God has. So here's what he does, and it's just incredibly tragic. Verse 28. So the king consulted and made two golden calves, and he said to them, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Are you serious? (laughs) Where have you heard this before? All the way back to the Exodus, right? When Aaron makes the golden calf, and they're doing the very same thing. They just create, hey... It's too hard. I might lose my power. So how about, how about this? I'll just make you some golden baby cows. And you can worship them. Because they're the ones that brought you up out of Egypt. And like, it's, not, it's bad enough that he makes them and says to worship them. But then gives them the credit for something God has done. And he says this. And you just have this, this compromise coming in. And then if you look at verse, now verse 29... Which takes us to our Danite friends. It says, he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. All right? So, if you look on your little divided kingdom map on the back there, you see Bethel is right across the border of Judah and Israel. Okay? It's pretty close to Jerusalem. Dan is way all the way up in the north. And it's way up in the northern territory of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he puts one of his baby cows there, you know, and he puts some baby cows down in Bethel and says, just just do it there, worship there, make sacrifices there. And it continues, it says, now this thing, in case you were confused, now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And so Dan, which has been this place that was like a, it was started with treachery and deceit and, you know, threats of murder and idolatry is now, again, even more so filled with, with all of that. 
And uh, you can go to this very spot in Dan in the north of Israel now and see where this was, uh, where this uh, altar was. It's pretty crazy to think about. And it says, and he made houses on high places. Remember the command about don't do that. Don't have these houses on high places of worshiping false gods. And he made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. So again, he's going against those who were supposed to lead in that. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he'd made. Then he went up to the altar uh, which he'd made on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month, check this part out, which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel um, and went up to the altar to burn incense. So Jeroboam is just doing everything wrong. He's making his own. It says he devised in his own heart. I think a lot of times, you know, people like admire people that follow their heart. Yeah, that was a guy. Man, he follows his heart. Yeah, I love that about him. Well, Jeroboam follows his heart. I don't know if that's something to admire. What should be admired is the one who follows God's heart. That's what God is calling us to do here. We are to be men and women who don't just follow our own heart. We don't just make up whatever we would want to do. But we know what the heart of God is, and that's how we pattern our lives. That's how we want to be led. Led by God's heart for us, not our own heart, because it is so easy for our own hearts to slip into idolatry. And it's so easy for us to have a half-hearted commitment to God. But a half-hearted commitment to the Lord is a total commitment to idolatry. We can allow the things of this world that we create to be our gods. To be the thing that we pattern our lives after. To be what we worship. To be what we make our life about. And we can even make our circumstances or our surroundings or the people that we're surrounded with. We can allow that to determine how we are committed to God or how much we are committed to God. And I think about that when I think about those circumstances dictating how we live our lives. With whatever, maybe bad stuff's happened to us. Maybe we have friends that, you know, we, we have a hard time being a Christian around or something like that. Whatever that would be. But when I think about these circumstances, I mean, imagine if this border had been about, you know, another 20 miles to the south. That would just make Jerusalem be in the northern kingdom instead of the southern kingdom. And then would it have just been easy for Jeroboam to follow God? Or was there already some sort of compromise and rebellion taking place in his heart that was just kind of being played out all the way at this point. I don't know. We, we, we probably don't know all those details of what if. But what I would say is whether the border is placed at that center aisle or the back aisle or wherever, that shouldn't dictate how we live our lives for God. That we live our lives for God no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what our surroundings, and no matter what is going on in our lives. Because these, these kings are bad, yes. I mean, they're both bad, right? Rehoboam's a jerk, and Jeroboam is following all these false idols. And you've got these people, though, that 
I mean, we don't, we don't get like a lot of detail, but it's just like, I don't know. I want to hope that, the, like, that I, I don't know if I would, but if I could put myself as some sort of hero in the story or something, and you know, place yourself there, you want to be running, right? You're just booking it for Jerusalem, no matter what. No matter what that king is going to do to you, you're going to Jerusalem and you're going to make those sacrifices that God has called you to make in the place that he's called you to do it. That's what you hope for, right? That's the hero of the story in some way that you think. But you don't know, you know, like, how, how would I respond to that? How do I respond now to when it's hard for me to represent Christ in this world? And so I think, like, how do we compromise? But even before we get totally into how we compromise, you got to see a little bit how the story kind of begins to end. It's crazy, okay? It says, 13.1, we'll just read five more verses. It says, Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, While Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense, he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And then he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Oh, it's intense. Yeah. And so we're going to hear more, too. We're going to get to Josiah as one of the kings we're going to talk about in this whole series. But we compromise in the same ways. We compromise, and it could be in those sort of quote-unquote obvious sins of temptation, right? Those things we think of as big sins in this world, but we also compromise when we don't love someone because we don't agree with them. We compromise on sharing our faith because of a fear or even an illusion of it being an inappropriate setting. We compromise welcoming people into the family of God and the family of our church because we're comfortable with the friends we already have. Those are things we don't even think about as compromises, compromises from what God would want us to do, how he would want us to live. We compromise truth because it's hard. And even just super briefly, I think about uh, James one twenty seven. This passage, you can look at it if you want, but it basically says this, pure and undefiled religion is this, that we would care for the orphan and the widow and keep ourselves unstained from the world. Now what happens is, I feel like we used to either not read this verse at all, or you would, people would just shout, keep yourself unstained from the world, you know? Don't sin. Don't do anything wrong. Obey. And you'd hear that, and you wouldn't hear anything else. You wouldn't hear anything about the orphan or the widow, maybe. And I feel like we sort of pendulum swing, where I now, I feel like whenever I hear someone read this passage, all I hear is, care for the orphan and the widow. And you know? And that's like, you don't hear any, the other part. And what I want to say is let's do both. Let's not compromise either. 
Let's be people who care for the orphan, the widow, the marginalized, the oppressed. Let's serve those in need of all kinds. But let's also keep ourselves unstained from the ways of the world as we live out that command. That is pure and undefiled religion. It's not just caring for the orphan and the widow. It's both. It's not just keeping yourself unstained. It's both. Compromise means you choose one and skip the other. So I want for us, when we think about compromise, how it creeps into our life, to keep all of it, to do all of it. Let's live that kind of life that we can for God, but also remember that it's all out of a gospel of grace of Jesus. That, yeah, he calls us to obedience, but first he calls us to a faith in him to be the redemption of our sins, not our works. Because Jesus is the redeemer of our compromise. Not any longer our works. No longer going down to Jerusalem, you know, or going up to Jerusalem, to the temple, and going and offering those sacrifices. Things have changed here a bit because of Jesus, because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, because he ascended then too and, and left the Holy Spirit where now we are indwelled by the very Spirit of God and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. Our, t- our bodies are the temple of God. So now where the presence of God dwells is within us, right? That we are these temples. We are these representatives. It's amazing. And we look at John, uh, verse, or John chapter 4. And John chapter 4 has this interesting interaction when it comes to this whole topic that we're talking about today. Because it takes place in a place called Samaria, which you can see in your little maps, again, if you look. But Samaria, we don't have time to get into the whole story, but it's kind of like, it's basically, it's basically like mudbloods, okay? Uh, If you know what I'm talking about, like from Harry Potter, nobody likes them. They're kind of like this mixed thing, and nobody likes them, all right? Now, it says here we have in Samaria, we have this woman who Jesus is talking to. And in verse 20, this woman asked Jesus a question. He says, or she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's talking about a place called Mount Gerizim. This is a mountain where they began to then do their practices of worship, okay? Now, so, so we're not talking about Dan, Bethel, and you got Mount Gerizim, and then he talks about Jerusalem. You say it's in Jerusalem, right? Because that's what the law says. Jesus, though, now says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, even referring to himself. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what matters now is this worship in spirit and truth. And then the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you 
am he. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am the one that's come to fulfill the law. Not to abolish the law, but through me, through what I've done, Jesus says, I've fulfilled all of this. And you don't need to worry about this place and location, all of that anymore, because it's about the Spirit of God dwelling within you. It's about truly worshiping the Messiah for who he is. Because what was most important was that this woman recognized Jesus for who he really is. Have you recognized Jesus for who he really is like this woman has? I think that's the big question then for us today. That's the question in the way that we can respond. Is I would ask you today to examine your life. Take a moment. You can put everything down, whatever. Just examine your life. How has compromise begun to creep into your thoughts and actions? Maybe even in this moment, just just close your eyes for the ability to focus. And recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the healer of your sin and brokenness, your compromise. He takes it, he forgives it, and heals it. And we, we want to hold up truth, but holding up truth is as much about recognizing that we are saved by grace through faith as it is demanding holiness according to God's word. So let's not compromise grace by demanding works, but let's not compromise works by cheapening the grace that God has given us. And so as you examine your life, I just, I encourage you today to call out to Jesus, not to anyone or anything else, no other idol or any other created thing, but to Jesus for the grace that he willingly offers you right now. It's a free gift. Jesus' salvation and grace and forgiveness is a free gift. We're going to spend some time in worship, and I want to encourage you, if you want to pray with someone about that, we will have people on the sides of these prayer points that can pray with you about that to help guide you, walk you through it. You have a chance to come up to these stations, these tables around the room, and to to receive communion and to remember what Jesus did on the cross, that he gave his body and he shed his blood so that we might have that forgiveness of sin, that we no longer have to go to that that temple to offer sacrifices for atonement, that he paid the price for all time through his work on the cross and his resurrection in power. We can come, we can give, we can give our offerings to the Lord as we surrender and worship him through giving of our tithes and offerings. So let's pray as we respond to that grace that is offered to you. As you compromise, we all compromise. God is saying, Jesus is saying, receive forgiveness today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for the gift of Jesus. That all of these impossible to follow rules that we cannot do ourselves, Lord. Lord, that you have covered them with your blood. It is your blood that cleanses us, God, and we, we ask for your forgiveness and your grace in our lives. But may we live lives that don't cheapen that grace. May we live lives that honor you and glorify you in all of our actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.